We are and always will be a nation of immigrants. This is my country, my damn country. Give me my country, you can keep the rest. Old men and women yearning for freedom and opportunity who leave their homelands and come to a new country to start their lives over. We were strangers once too. Hello, 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 aliens and allies. Your friendly Russian is here. This is We the Aliens podcast, and I am your host, Sasha Kapustina. Here, I talk to immigrants who are kicking ass in the U.S. Thank you for tuning in. My guest this week is Isham Udguri, a Moroccan-American entrepreneur, the founder of Enigma, a startup that creates a data infrastructure that helps businesses make informed decisions, mostly about other businesses. One of their focus points is specifically small business lending, which is notoriously difficult, and Enigma is aiming to change that and has made some progress there. Among their clients are PayPal, American Express, and Capital One. Isham is my second high-tech guest in a row. I hope you guys don't mind. I guess it's a reflection of the world we live in, or at least my sense about it. Data and data collection and exploitation of data is everywhere, and many of us have our concerns, fears, frustrations about it. But the reality is that this is how the world will be for decades to come, and we better learn how to deal with it and hopefully benefit from it. This is part one of the conversation, and we focus on Isham's family's background and how the mix of Moroccan, French, and American cultures has instilled him with the values of open-mindedness, nomadic desire to explore the frontier, and at the same time, appreciation of the civic values and ethics, and how all of that manifests in his day-to-day -day business thinking. And here's our chat. So my usual first question is, Where did you come here from and when? I came to the U.S. when I was about one and a half or two years old from Morocco. My father worked for Moroccan Airlines and, you know, he had the opportunity to go be an expatriate abroad. And I grew up, interestingly, multiple places, I would say. I grew up in um you know uh surrounding new york and in new york until i was about 10 and then we moved to paris france oh wow and then i eventually came back to the united states when i was 16 or 17 something along those lines mm -hmm. and then i've since you know lived in in multiple other places eventually coming back to to the u.s i do find that once people move once they do find it much easier to move further. It probably has to do with, you know, once you've disconnected yourself, sort of uprooted yourself from the original place, you can go anywhere. Totally. So what was your family's background in Morocco? Really fascinating. I mean, my family is originally from a city in Morocco called Fez, which is a very, very old city. I think Fez was founded, you know, itself in the year... I want to say 700 or 800. And my family's from there, have since dispersed to all over Morocco, Casablanca, Marrakesh, Tangiers. And my family's background, pretty diverse as it is in Morocco. I mean, my grandfather, actually with his brother and another gentleman were the founders of the first political party in Morocco. That's that exciting. 
super exciting um, that negotiated um, like full independence from France in the 50s. Mm. And I always remember those those stories. Um, and so, you know, my, my grandfather on my mom's side um, was very much so like a person about town and the kind of person that if you walked in the street, people would recognize him in Fez and say hello to him. It was a very memorable experience growing up. And I'd say, you know, fairly educated relative to Morocco, um, had plenty of opportunity. But, you know, both my grandmothers never learned how to read or write. Oh, wow. So there is this, you know, n- not many generation disconnect in between, you know, kind of how they grew up and and how I grew up and, and just our different life experiences. That's very grounding for me. Yeah, it feels, it, I really you know, rest a lot on at least that part of my identity for how I view the world and how I think about what's possible in such a short amount of time. And so what is the core of that identity, if you were to define it? Oh, man, it's, 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 it's pretty complicated. But, you know, they say even Moroccan identity is a very kind of multi, multiracial, multicultural identity. It was kind of a melting pot of its own back, yeah. you know, um, throughout the centuries because of its location. Exactly. So it has, you know, I'd say the, the, the roots of it are definitely, you know, in Africa, the tree in of itself is, you know, just kind of indigenous, the indigenous Berber culture you have middle Eastern influence, tremendous amount of influence from Europe there was a long period of time where Morocco was just kind of extended out into Spain. And so my identity, I definitely feel, you know, one with the African continent pretty broadly. I spent a lot of time later in my kind of early adulthood working all over Africa and in Morocco, but I also feel Europeanized. Like my parents went through kind of formal French education. I went through formal French education, even you know, in the US and lots of laws and mannerisms and approaches um, to things in Morocco are very, very influenced by France. Um, at the same time, you know, I feel, you know, uh, Middle Eastern in my senses, like having, you know, speaking kind of Moroccan Arabic and identifying with the like art and geometry of the Middle East as it's expressed in Morocco in its own unique ways. I guess I'm also American, like I was naturalized here. I probably speak English, but it's better than any of my other languages. You know, I enjoy, you know, grilling burgers and 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 having a hot dog. That is very I'm not reducing <laughs> American culture to that, but actually right right after college, I desperately wanted to move to Texas. I had this job opportunity in Texas and this like romanticization with the American West that I don't know, comes from like uh, uh, just kind of growing up here and trying to understand like that original history and that pioneer spirit. And to this day, absolutely love the Southwest. It's one of my favorite places in the world. And I guess I'm also French. Like I went, you know, I, I lived in France for, for seven years, I've been speaking French my whole life. I studied philosophy partially in college and, you know, uh, read a lot of French thinkers, 
existentialists uh, have like a French national team soccer jersey somewhere in my closet. So <laughs> Interesting. I feel, yeah, I feel very mixed in, in that sort of way and, and, you know, carrying it, I guess, also into like my, my marriage. I mean, it's just I'm like the complete, in some senses, the complete opposite of, of my wife. I'm like six, one dark hair, you know, um, you know, kind of Mediterranean toned skin. And my wife is like five, two blonde from Long Island and she's <laughs> Jewish and I'm Muslim. And it's just kind of, this kind of pattern it carries for me where I feel like very open and, and um, welcoming into like being a broader citizen of, of the world. Although the world for me somehow triangulates in between, you know, New York, Paris and, and Casablanca somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic ocean is probably where, where like when I fly over, I'm like feeling a, a sense of, you know, I'm, I'm in between all of the, all of the big poles of, of my life. That makes a lot of sense. It's it's interesting because I have slightly different triangle, but but also a triangle. I I have Moscow, Israel, and Los Angeles, and yes. I'm kind of in between there also. Um, yeah, it's very interesting what you were bringing up that sense of openness to the world and being sort of a world citizen. I feel that immigration experience kind of forces you into that mindset. And one of the ideas that I want to um, kind of promote with this podcast, if anything, is that idea of openness, because, you know, in the world that is increasingly polarized, which is, which is confusing. I want, I, I, I'm curious what you think about it as somebody uh, who has thought about things and who studied philosophy is um, that kind of uh, pulling between the trends here. On one hand, we're being so globalized and on the other hand, we're so polarized. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, the last couple of years, we've certainly seen this kind of nationalistic trend, you know, on the rise um, in, in politics, you know, with everything from like the Trump stance on immigration to Brexit to you know, what's happening in Brazil, Eastern pockets of Eastern Europe. Um, Not just Eastern. I mean, speaking of France. All of Europe. Yes, all of Europe. Yeah, all of Europe. France, massive immigration issues as, as always. I think that I feel like we're going to laugh about it pretty intensely. I mean, we're pretty tribal creatures in nature, I think, human beings. Like we, you know, we tend to you know, even like during COVID, it was like, like, dude, who's in your pod, right? Yeah. We just like closed ranks so fast to what is safe for us. And, you know, it's probably deep evolutionary, you know, kind of a formation over time of, it's hard to trust the unknown. Like fundamentally, yeah. if I'm going out to the, into the jungle, it's very hard to trust the unknown. And so uh, I understand why, we behave in, in, in tribal ways and, you know, are scared of like the other on one hand, on the other hand, I mean, every single thing that we've been doing towards this grand idea we call progress, 
I think has just connected people more and more so together, right? Whether it's, you know, uh, music, uh, you know, arts and culture, when we study, you know, things that really evoke and, and kind of uh, capture people's imaginary and attention, they kind of capture them regardless of where the people are from. And, you know, this is, um, I, I think, a trend over time. It's like what becomes, what becomes popular kind of supersedes any one culture or nation or, or anything like that. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, art is a universal language and, and, and music and for sure. Um, let's hope that there is this generation of artists coming in that will be able to to capture that and to really unite. I mean, if we if you look at the way popular culture is, it's definitely taking us in that direction. I mean, uh, J-Lo is J-Lo all over the world. And so- Yeah, exactly. Um, yes, yes. A lot um, of movies and TV shows, Game of Thrones are super popular all over the world. And so I guess there's uh, a hope there. That's an interesting to totally, way to think totally about it. Totally hope. And, and I think, you know, we, we have treated immigration as, for so long as like uh, as as just the consequence of like labor shortages, right? Um, and have always talked about immigration in the context of you know labor economics, etc. But I think what people are forgetting is that you know part of it is just just discovery, right? Like before immigration, there is this notion of exploration. There's this notion of wanting to you know, um, be these people out there that discover the edges of the, the universe. And I, I don't think it's all economic. I think we also have like a very strong nomadic pulse as a species, like want, like movement is a very, you know, life affirming thing for us. And I, you know, my worldview, or at least my, my political views are not super tightly held, except for maybe one is like, I, I would love to see you know a world where this isn't as stringent of a of a conception of 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 borders right there's like very much so an imaginary line um there's strong cultures that are attached to certain regions um but the notion of i think political borders and nation states and i think that's relatively new in in history at least the way it's been um been enforced and I think we will go back to a state with, you know, where like cities are more so, you know, the, the primary governance mechanism uh, and the things that people attach to and that, you know, the nation state is a little less relevant as an item or as a, as a topic. But again, that's, you know, way too far off in time to be able to, to kind of talk about those things with, with any kind of honest prediction, but Who knows? definitely something look forward to yeah who knows i mean look at what's happening in decentralized finance with crypto and yeah. everything we're like all rebelling against you know nation state control over day-to-day -day lives because it just doesn't make sense it's like i can pick up the phone and call anyone you know over facetime no matter where they are in the world but i can't send money there are weird restrictions on that or i can't go plan a trip without all kinds of administrative um, things and you know people are whatever the consumer trends are 
tend to overtake, you know, whatever administrative burdens. And I think we'll just continue to see that more and more. Yeah, for sure. And I personally, I'm very excited about that. Uh, I Speaking of, you know, cultural affiliations, and I definitely feel that one thing that I am kind of, um, not not to say worried because there's no point in being worried about the future, but it's something that I hope we manage to maintain are those local cultures that are somehow uh, not necessarily contrary to a global world, but they're not as uh, intuitive in that kind of environment. Um, yeah. So so what was what was it for you being a Moroccan in New York or or wherever you were growing up? What did your family um, intentionally bring you up as a Moroccan? Was that part of your upbringing? Yeah, I think I think they intentionally intentionally did because you know it's a a strong aspect of Moroccan culture is maintaining. Moroccan identity is just like a very insidious culture in the way that permeates even um, what it means to be Moroccan. I give you, I give you an, uh, just a small example. Like the citizenship in Morocco is something that cannot be applied for. Huh? It's a really treasured citizenship. You know, not treasured in the sense that there are many people like vying for it. Actually, it's a pretty <laughs> bad one from an international travel perspective i'm quite lucky to be an american citizen as well say that but yeah like if you've lived there for you know 40 years there is no application process you can't like renounce it easily either hmm. but my parents main vector i think for keeping my moroccan identity was somewhat opportunistic which was my father worked for an airline and so we had free airplane tickets and this meant that we were going to go back, you know, every summer for, you know, uh, an extended period of time. Or, you know, as soon as I was eight years old, I was being sent to go hang with my cousins and my aunts and uncles. And I, I feel almost guilty sometimes when I meet some immigrants who uh, unfortunately didn't have that experience of being kind of as connected to back home you know, speaking the language fluently and, and all of these things. And I feel kind of growing up that I had this completeness to it. And I'm now kind of struggling with that with my own children, you know, how, yeah. to, how to do that as well. It's certainly the case for kind of first generation folks like myself, that they're able to maintain a strong identity. And for me, it's a, like an immense source of stability and, and foundation, to be honest. For sure. I, I I can definitely relate to that. I was very fortunate because I call my immigration a velvet immigration, like a velvet revolution. Yes. I came here as a as a student. I didn't have to run away from anything. I came with good English. I came with a profession that could be translated into a career here. I came without rejection of my home country as opposed to a lot of Russians who came here in the earlier waves of immigration, because of how the world was, they either had to go for good because, you know, they were behind the iron curtain and they just couldn't even call sometimes their family, 
or just because of how life was in like in the 90s people were leaving everything behind and they felt that they have to break up with their past and i think that kind of transition is very traumatic and it actually leads to a worse integration i agree i feel that the fact that i could go home every year and i'm connected with russia a lot like through the media through social media through you know facetiming my friends and family i don't have to reject a huge part of myself and i am much more comfortable with that yeah i'm i'm like i said the, that that feeling of guilt of having kind of an authenticity with back home and and feeling welcome back home it i i was certainly um uh kind of shocked when i moved to france as a 10 year old and it was a completely different immigrant experience for me because as a moroccan immigrant in in new york you know i was fairly kind of a like a, a an unknown alien so to speak right um almost celebrated for you know the exotic ways and 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 whatnot but in france where the immigrant experience and history is a little a little darker right essentially you know moroccans came to france while france had some sort of protectorate control um of morocco they came to rebuild you know france basically post world war 2 um and were very much so recruited you know essentially and only for for their labor mm-hmm. this is like a very different relationship um you know to that that kind of immigrant environment one where you know i experienced a tremendous amount of, of racism and i remember some folks telling me like hey no no you're a different kind of moroccan immigrant like you grew up in the us and you did not you know um you know you kind of like coming from you know a uh, a uh, well to do background and that was um very hard for me to process yeah um as a young child and you know it was like a a, a community that i always sought to connect to like that you know a moroccan community in 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 france which you know is um really part of like a a socioeconomic system that makes makes it quite hard for them to fully integrate because they can neither really reintegrate back into morocco they kind of grew up french french yeah um and never really fully accepted um in society the way you know um uh, uh some uh, someone someone would be in the united states in my opinion um it was very very shocking for me and i was like this is a different kind of immigration experience and you know with all kinds of racism i remember my parents at a young age like telling me to not speak moroccan in the subway or something along those lines and feeling very insecure about our identity there because of the whole you know pervasiveness of that um of that culture and its tension with with french culture is certainly certainly something else wow that's interesting uh yeah definitely it it has come up in in conversations with with my other guests where uh it is a uniquely american thing to kind of celebrate this uh dual identity 
I am Russian American or I'm Moroccan American or and people even who are even few generations uh, removed, they even they still want to maintain that connection to what they are. People, people who whose parents and great great parents came here uh, through Ellis Island in like 19th century, they still consider themselves Italian American or Irish American. Um, and it was so funny to me, like when I first met my father-in-law, for example, uh, his great grandfather literally came from uh, Russian empire through Ellis Island in early 20th century. And the first thing, and I was very self-conscious about being Russian because Russian women have some reputation sometimes in, uh, with the, uh, with their intentions. <laughs> and I was very self-conscious meeting my husband's parents. And the first thing his father says is like, hi, I'm Russian. And I was like, in my head, I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it was so uh, kind and so welcoming. And at the same time, over time, I realized that in fact, he, that's how he sees himself in, in a way. Yeah, you, you kind of, I mean, it's one of the few places in the world where, you know, um, you, you, you know, there's basically like such a weird setup with the native population, right? It's like this. Weird is mildly said. <laughs> yeah, weird is mildly. Um, and, you know, history is, is history and there's set certainly you know, much, much to learn from in, in that perspective. Um, and I'm happy as, you know, as a, as a species, we've, we've grown to encompass, I think, larger, larger senses of morality and, and more modern senses of morality. But, you know, the weird setup with the, with the population aside, I think the, um, the other thing that's interesting is kind of, it's one of the only places where you're not really complete until you trace back the where you came from roots, you know? Um, and the entire country was set up as a essentially refugee colony. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And it's, it's deep in the history and everyone has gone through some sort of immigrant adversity story. Um, you know, that's, that's not that old when you think about it. And that is Lincoln. even more, and that makes it even more fascinating, that whole, you know, anti-immigrant sentiment. And it's kind of, yes. it kind of keep, keeps repeating itself through generations. Like, we know, you know, early 20th century, it was, you know, against Irish and Italians. And now, you know, later it was, I mean, it's always against Jews, whatever. But, you know, more recently, it's against south americans and central americans and it it really doesn't make any sense it doesn't it's it's really really um it's really really fascinating to think about all of these things i mean one of my favorite whenever i um with folks who are really into american history and the american identity and kind of intrigued about me being from Morocco what is that like you know I, I always remind them of this funny fact that Morocco is actually the first country to have formally recognized the U.S. as huh. a real country yeah there's like a famous treaties in between Morocco and 
And, you know, what at the time was, you know, the colonies in the middle of their rebellion still against the British and Morocco was like, okay, we're going to bet on these guys and sign the first formal piece of paperwork recognizing the United States, quote unquote. And that always blows people's mind. It's like, just remember that at one point in time, there was no country to be from, right? Yeah. And this like rando little country that you, you know, we've identified me as being an immigrant from actually had the stature to, to recognize <laughs> in the yeah. global scene. It's always um, makes for a fascinating uh, topic for, for conversation and Moroccan Morocco U S relationship um, is, is, is still really fascinating. And to this day, I think still advantageous because of that long standing diplomatic history. And I feel like um, there are relations, there's like this kind of tacit political history in between the two countries that almost defines part of your status as a, as an immigrant. Right. Um, Interesting. Yeah. We were talking about this Moroccanness and Moroccan identity. What do you feel? And you mentioned this open-mindedness and, and being a, a part of a global community. What would be one of the Moroccan or maybe French uh, traits or values or parts of your character that you feel have has had a major impact on you and how you um, what you go about creating in, in your life. That's interesting. Um, I think if I were to think about it pretty deeply, I think, um, uh, notions of, 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 um, hospitality and, and diplomacy and community. Like I remember growing up, um, in a place where like if we had lunch um, at my grandfather's house, like the doors would be open to friends, neighbors, people walking by on this, you know, on the street. There's this notion of like anyone and anyone and everyone is is very welcome. And it's it's pervasive. It's part of our like tourism brand, right? Um, I think people recognize that. Uh, it's a very, very welcoming um, hospitality and you know, as uh, an entrepreneur who, you know, recruits people and manages people, um, you know, you have to manage people within like certain hierarchies for efficiency and getting the job done and being coordinated. Um, but at the same time, I try to foster this environment where like everyone is welcome. All ideas are welcome. Doesn't matter how long you've been here or how you know, um, senior you are in, in, in status or, or, you know, what your background is from a, you know, education point of view, um, this notion that we're kind of all like here at this moment, and there is very, very little that separates us um, uh, from each other, you know, as, you know, this one community, this one institution that we've, you know, created towards a, a common goal. I think that's probably the trait from my identity that I most closely and kind of consciously identify with. I'd say the other important one is, 
you know, just this notion of the the world being like a marketplace and that it's very important to understand what you're building, not only from an internal point of view, um, but from an external point of view, like everyone is connected, like let me put it this way, um, that doing business is doing business within an ecosystem of people, right? Mm-hmm. That um, partners are essentially a good thing. You know, if people maybe overlap with you slightly competitively, but there's still an opportunity to partner, that it's always better to partner and reach a greater number of people than to be too narrowly or myopic about competition, that there's, you know, a big ecosystem and that ecosystem kind of um, uh, uh, truly, you know, lifts everyone on. I'm very, um, at least in my, my business thinking, very obsessed with how companies that are ecosystem driven tend to succeed in very, very sustainable ways as opposed to companies who are necessarily kind of obsessed about the one proprietary thing that they have, you know, that those things get wiped out pretty quickly when some new technological innovation happens or some business model disruption, whereas companies that have anchors in ecosystems who are like platforms for other people to build on tend to build very, very large sustainable businesses. And that being a strong ecosystem player makes what you do very, very defensible. Yeah, that's fascinating. So I know that you studied philosophy. Yeah, amongst many other things. How did you become a startup uh, entrepreneur? How, how does that happen? So I went to Columbia and we didn't, Columbia has this little hack that not many people know about, which is you don't actually have to declare a major. You can just graduate with a minor, um, which the, the second I heard that, I was like, oh, this is great because you know, I can continue studying math or I can take classes at, you know, in, 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 um, in the law school or, you know, at the business school. And it, it promotes a very kind of well-rounded liberal arts education, but I think it takes it a bit further than, um, than other universities. But did you have an idea? Did you have a plan? Did you have a dream at that? No, no I had no plan. So I was pretty much obsessed because of the geopolitical ramifications of it, um, um, quite honestly, by just oil as a commodity. I was like, I'm obsessed with what is going on. You know, this was in the early 2000s. It was during the, you know, uh, uh, Iraq war, oil prices were going through the roof. And I became pretty obsessed with oil and energy as a thing and somehow gravitated towards that industry. I'd always been technical. I've always been programming since I was a young kid, mostly to you know get free mu- movies and music off the internet, amongst other things. But I'd always been really fascinated by computers and making little software programs for myself at home. Essentially, in college, at the end of it, I was obsessed by by energy, and um, I got an opportunity to go work um, at a company that actually. Uh, did, you know, exploration and production of oil in in Texas, in Dallas, Texas. It was a small fund. They would buy back uh, very, very old uh, kind of energy, like oil fields uh, that had been abandoned by large companies in the 60s. The Chevrons and the Exxons of the world, you know, they were off somewhere in coastal 
you know, the Gulf of Mexico or in the Arctic. And what was, you know, Texas oil production was mostly outsourced to a smaller network of independent um, operators. And I got to work for one of them and we got to do some really cool things with, with data and finding potential new opportunities. And I did that for a while and I really, really um, enjoyed it. And it was my first experience with data. Um, I don't know if you've seen the movie Moneyball, but yes, we we're basically doing Moneyball for, you know, small scale oil, right? Yeah. Instead of spending years analyzing like this one field, we would look at dozens and dozens of fields at the time with, you know, more statistical approach to things, looking at all kinds of interesting data points that people wouldn't usually look at instead of sending, you know, probes down the ground to see if oil is still there, kind of look at a much larger, you know, list of things and then kind of narrow it down. So I got exposed. And it worked. And it worked. And I got exposed to data and how much I love data as a tool, as a process, as a medium for creating value and discovering value. And then I went, had an opportunity after that experience to actually go back um, to be based in Morocco and work for a, a very large African banking group and um, mm-hmm. the World Bank. And they had set aside a couple hundred million dollars to lend to companies that were um, basically making their wares in a more environmentally and socially positive way. And so I was involved in a lot of green energy projects, solar, uh, wind farms, putting those together, but also understanding, you know, which of the, um, you know, furniture factories across this portfolio of clients in these banks were using less, you know, water or electricity to make the furniture. And I was involved in um, basically kind of a wing of sustainable development for, for quite some time traveling all over Africa, using again, data to solve a problem that was very qualitative at the time. So we developed this method of scoring companies based on their environmental and social impact. And that's how we justified who we gave the money to. And it's interesting how Africa is such, has such great potential there with the new sources of energy. Absolutely. I mean, they're able to leapfrog because essentially their development curve, you know, really hit as these new sources of energy come online. So they don't have to shut down the coal plants or the, you know, and, you know, just pure, you know, topological geographic realities of being in a very sunny environment, having a small amount of of actual energy consumption where they can realistically say, hey, we're going to power things in in a very green way. So it's fascinating to see that. And from there, again, it was this notion of like using data to come closer to, to the truth that I became obsessed with it. And it wasn't until, you know, I left that opportunity to come back to be in New York, mostly because I wanted to me, me and um, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, she was abroad in Europe. Mm. Um, she's also from New York and she was abroad studying in Europe. 
And we decided to go back to New York together as like, uh, okay, well, at least, you know, I'm not going to come to Europe. You're not going to come to Morocco. We both wanted a change. And I ended up back in New York. And that's when, you know, I had the idea that I would start a, a data company, um, you know, which I run today called um, Enigma, uh, which is essentially right now, our, our biggest focus is on helping um, the uh, financial sector and other folks uh, know more about small medium businesses so that they can lend to them more easily um, so that that sector of the economy, you know, which actually has a really hard time getting financing, um, you know, it's just a sector of the economy that that is more, you know, active and, and productive and, and meaningful. But the, the idea was that there was a lot of interesting things happening on the internet from a data perspective, advertising, Google search, you know, all the things people do in order to understand user behavior on the internet. But there wasn't that much, you know, uh, uh, that many advanced data science and analytics about, you know, behavior in the real world. What, how do we measure the health of companies in the real world? Yeah, we know the companies in the stock market, but what, there's a couple of thousand of them. But what about the 30 million or so companies in, you know, uh, uh, in, the, in the U.S.? And yes, we know, you know, users on the internet, what they click on. But let's talk about like fundamental demographics of people. How are cities changing? How is that affecting economies? Who's moving where? All of these questions about how data can, can just start to describe about how the real world works is, you know, essentially what we do. And I don't know, just kind of stepped into that by passion. And one day, you know, eventually um, a couple of years later, found like uh, a couple meaty business problems that, that we can attack and have some impact on. It's fascinating, and I I find it very um, admirable that you're focusing on small business, because most startups, or or at least maybe that's how I see it, they want to aim at a bigger uh, at bigger things. They want to attach themselves to bigger things, um, and you are um, focusing on serving. The little guy, uh, where where did that come from? You know, it was um, it was like a real panoply of things that we were doing at the very beginning. I mean, we were using data to help pharmaceutical companies understand adverse events in drugs. We were using data, you know, to help CPG companies understand where to place products. And we were so we were a bit all over at the beginning. We just acquired a bunch of data and started to mine the insights and. Um, eventually narrowed in on small business when we understood how large the opportunity actually was. It was basically, you know, the little guy is a little guy alone, but when you look at the 30 million or so small businesses that are out there, it's a meaningful segment of the economy, right? Like small business lending is about one-tenth um, consumer lending. And consumer lending is one of the biggest businesses in the United States. I mean, it's like home mortgages, it's, it's, it's everything. And 50% of the small businesses um, just don't get, slightly more than 50%, don't get the financing they need, right? Um, and it's, um, we kind of were looking at it 
The real aha moment was even more accidental. We fundraised from a lot of the, the large banks who have problems, you know, understanding the health of, of small businesses. So they're very concerned. They know it's a big market, which is very hard to profile them and to get any data on them. Mm -hmm. And what happened was one of these banks ended up investing in us and we applied as a company a couple of weeks later for a credit card for one of these banks. And it turned out that bank, you know, had given us a couple million dollars in equity financing but rejected us for like a $20,000 limit credit card. It is very familiar story to a lot of people. Yeah, very familiar story for small businesses. And they were talking to us and, you know, kind of went to the root cause of the issues. Like, why, like, why did you, like, you literally sent us a couple million dollars. And they told us, well, no, it's a separate, obviously it's a separate process. It's an automated process. And they said, we couldn't verify your phone number. And I was like, phone number? Like, you know, there are, 12 people at the time that work at the company. We don't have a corporate phone number, this is our cell phone. And by the way, like who has a corporate landline today? Like, yes, this, yeah. is, this is how we verify it, you know. Um, and it, I realized that the- A free Google number at best. Yes, exactly. That the practices <laughs> of interacting with a small business or a business owner or like 10 years behind the practices of, you know, interacting with a consumer, like try renting a car under a business name, it's like so much more paperwork or getting insurance and just the experience of doing business as a small business is very difficult. Yet at the same time, there it's a highly resilient sector of the economy. And it's one where, you know, incidentally, like immigrants play a pretty massive role. I don't know the exact number. I know that in the restaurant business, it's 60% mm -hmm. of small businesses are, are immigrant. And I don't know other stats. You probably know them better. Oh, definitely. I, mean, uh, I think it's almost 20% um, of all small business owners are immigrants. Yeah. And it's 14% of population. Yes, exactly. That's very interesting to us. I think of all of the growth in small business over recent times over the last years, I think 30 immigrants made up like 30% of that growth. So it's definitely a sector that immigrants kind of gravitate towards. And you can imagine the reasons why, like entrepreneurship is very appealing to, you know, immigrants who frankly don't necessarily all the time have the, you know, the trappings of kind of corporate America in terms of their, their job prospects. Like they're not going to get very far in corporate America, um, but they can own, you know, small businesses and can grow in that way. Um, you know, the flip side of this, is there's also like highly skilled immigrants. I mean, we, we are constantly in some sort of visa process um, at Enigma. Um, yeah. This is just, I, I couldn't even tell you like, who's just an American citizen. I feel like every, almost everyone has, um, some sort of background, some sort of um, some sort of history there. And so it's been um, definitely like a, an important topic, not just, you know, in the work that we do, but in the technology community that we inhabit. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed it. Tune in on Thursday for part two of the conversation where we talk about the importance of having an open mind about data. Find Isham on Twitter. Find Enigma's website. Check out their articles on Medium. 
Follow us on Instagram and Twitter and go get your We The Aliens summer merch. It's time to get out, which means it's time for a new t-shirt. And check this out. If you check out, wink, wink, between May 27th and June 1st and use the promo code SUMMER21, you'll get a 10% discount. So no excuse not to get it. All the links are in the show notes and on our website. And last but not least, don't forget to share the show with a friend. I don't know, someone who's enthusiastic about data applications or someone who's worried about how they're watching us, or someone who is like me, just curious about how the hell are we going to figure this out. Click share, text them a link, and remember, we're here to stay. We'll find our way. Thank you for listening. Have a great week, and keep staying safe when you're out there. Love you all. Peace.